so, you know, we're in this passage from Matthew chapter 28. And I want to start out by saying this. Apart from Jesus Christ, we human beings live crooked lives. We may not become murderers. Um, we may not become the worst, but we're a lot like a boat with too small of an anchor on a, a windy day. We're blown about. Um, <laughs> we're, sorry. Um, so this isn't to say that with Christ we live perfect lives, but Christ does give our lives a distinct shape and integrity. Christ becomes the heavy anchor that holds us steady in life. So in Matthew's story of Christ's resurrection, we witness this reality playing out. Soldiers who guarded the tomb of Christ take a bribe to spread a lie. They reject the risen Christ, and in doing so, they start down a path on which they're going to become less and less human. They're going to become the worst kind of lawmen that you can imagine, those who wield the sword with wickedness and injustice, the kind of lawmen who prefer a lie over an inconvenient truth. Now, the disciples, they're imperfect too, no doubt. They have been cowards. They rejected and abandoned their own friend, their own Lord, as he was being crucified. They probably, if it were up to them, would have lived a quiet and shame-stricken life the rest of their days. But something begins to change for the disciples. In Jesus' resurrection, they begin to be restored. The, the lives of the disciples post Jesus' crucifixion have long been one of those things that Christians have pointed to, to say, the resurrection has to have happened. This is proof of it. It's solid history that these disciples were unknown peasants before Jesus. And afterward, they did upend the known world with their faith in his resurrection victory. There's no doubt, historically, that these men were drastically changed and all the non-resurrection theories for this, that they had hallucinations of Christ or that they made it all up for power plays, these just don't account for the drastic shift that actually occurs in their lives. The Bible's account makes the most sense. Through faith in Christ's resurrection, they begin to be drawn out of their shell of shame and fear. And in following the Lord Jesus, they're filled with a strange fire. They begin to become more who they were made to be. They're, they begin to reflect the image of God again, instead of the fallen and broken image of humanity that we most commonly see in the world. In most of our Bibles, this passage in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, is titled The Great Commission. Uh, now, here's just an interesting fact. This passage began being called the Great Commission around the 17 and 1800s. This is relatively recently in, in the scope of things. It was eventually used by Bible editors as the title in our Bibles for this section. And since that time, Matthew has become the most famous of our four gospel endings. But Matthew's is not the only great commission in the Bible. Jesus would want us to know this. There are many other great commission statements in the Bible. 
And in all the great commission statements of the Bible, which I'm about to show you the, the, the first one of these, in all of these great commission statements, God is aiming at the same thing. And here's the main point I'd like to draw out for this this morning. God intends to fill the earth with people who reflect his glory. God intends to fill the earth with people who reflect his glory. And in the resurrection of Jesus, he is doing just that. So where, where would the first great commission statement of the Bible be? It's just where you think you'd find it. It's in the first book of the Bible, the very first chapter, Genesis 1. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I want to note a few things from this passage. First, God has authority over everything. This is reiterated when Jesus says to the disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. But this is where we hear this the first time about God. God has authority over everything. God can't share an authority that's not his. He can't give dominion to, to humanity if it's not his to give. So this is an overarching point of the creation story in Genesis 1. God has authority over everything. He speaks and it comes to be. And his authority, I think this is especially important for us, it's not limited to the spiritual realm of life. God's authority extends into every inch of the cosmos, to plants and animals, the sky above, the earth and sea below. God has authority over everything. Now, second, God shares his authority. He shares his authority. In moments of suffering like we're living in right now in the world, God's authority is often questioned. It's sometimes even ridiculed. And the thought is that if God does have all authority, then he should put an end to this suffering and he should do it quickly. I think one of the problems with this, even though it's a great question, a great thing to pray into and to struggle with, the problem with it is that to believe God should exercise authority the same way that humans exercise authority is an assumption, a, a wrong assumption. Uh, humans exercise authority by trying to keep things in a tight grasp. By authority, humans usually mean control. But from the beginning, this is not what we know of God, of how he operates with authority. Instead of using his authority to control, God shares his authority. He shares his authority with us, with human beings. Now, th this statement in Genesis 1:28 is the most clear description in all the Bible for humanity's purpose in the world. It's going to be enlarged as the story unfolds of the Bible, but the substance doesn't change. From the start, humanity's purpose is to serve and steward God's creation. This is celebrated in the Psalm of Praise that Kelly, Miss Kelly talked from this morning of Psalm 8, the one we just listened to together. What is man that you're mindful of him, O God? 
and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Humans still, for good or for ill, are the stewards over God's creation. God has entrusted us with the authority to steward his world, even to today. So when we get to Jesus's commission in Matthew 28, that we are to make disciples of all nations, we should expect that this making of disciples will involve teaching people how to be rightful stewards of God's world. So first in this passage, God has authority over everything. Second, he shares this authority with humanity. And third, this is the only great commission in the Bible when humanity is without sin. This is the only great commission in the Bible when humanity is without sin. So in every other commission that we're going to see in the Bible, like the one in Matthew's gospel, God has to deal with humanity's brokenness, our fears, our sins, and so on. This is what Jesus is dealing with in the disciples the effects, the knock-on effects of their brokenness. Now think of the commission that God gives to Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery. It's very similar. Moses is terrified by this commission from God. He feels utterly incapable of carrying it out. He's haunted by the memory of losing his patience and killing an Egyptian years prior. Every commission from here on, from, from this point forward, after Genesis 1.28, is going to be haunted by the fall. And that said, every other commission after this one is going to hearken back to this one. After the fall, God seeks to restore within humanity the image of himself that is marred in the fall. So how does God do this? How does God work to fill the earth with people who reflect his glory? Now, over the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna we're going to tease out more from this passage. As the more and more I was digging into it, the more I saw that there was for us to look at. So this morning, the one way I want to talk about this passage is that God works through individuals. God works through individuals. So first, the commissioning of humanity in Genesis 1, it did not list the names of people. Do you notice this? It, it's a general commissioning to all humanity. Humanity was in the image of God, so all of humanity could receive this commission. But after the fall, there's a shift. Every commissioning after Genesis 1 has a name attached to it. Noah. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, King David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We could go on down the list. All of these are individuals with whom God shares his authority, his power, and his spirit in a special way. He calls them to lead his people in the world itself back to him. They're called on to be formed into the image of God themselves and to lead others to the same.
So you, you could especially explore the life of Abraham in this way. Abraham is called to leave his home country and to follow God, a God that he doesn't know very well. This is Genesis 12. And from Genesis 12 to 24, what we see is Abraham being formed in the way of faith in God. He's being formed in a way of faith in God so that he can lead a family, a nation, and the world itself to turn their face back to God. Now, all of these individuals that we're talking about in the Old Testament, they do this imperfectly, but God still works through them. Uh, Moses, he still works in dramatic ways through him. But eventually, through the line of these individuals, God brings forth the Christ, the promised Messiah. And Christ bears the image of God without the stain of sin. He shares the authority of God in a way that none of those other individuals did. He embodies God's image and God's likeness. But Christ, too shares authority in the way that God did. He calls individuals to follow him, to be formed into the image of God that is perfectly represented in himself. So then in the Great Commission, where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, like the Father, Jesus shares his authority. So the Gospel reading today, actually in our Easter devotional, is from the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, and in that passage, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he calls them by name to follow him. The only reason that their names are not listed in Matthew chapter 28 is because they were listed earlier in the Gospel. But the names of the disciples are important because they represent all Christians. There were 12 disciples so that they would represent the nation of Israel who were called to be God's people and to shine his light to the world. The disciples are to represent all of God's people whom God calls by name. Christ calls all who follow him by name. He calls us to follow him, to experience the freedom of being forgiven of our sin by his own blood and then the freedom of living in the way of our creator. And then, as Jesus did with the disciples, he shares his authority with us. He calls us to be part of his work of making disciples, of restoring the image of God in people by calling people to follow him. So I want you to go with me here for a second. And in the same way that Jesus called the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Christ calls on us today. He calls on uh, Leah. He calls on Stephanie. He calls on Levon. He calls on Rick. He calls on Travis. He calls on the individuals who make up Church of the Lamb, and he shares his authority with us to be his witnesses, to make disciples. Now, how is it that we as individuals become part of making disciples of Jesus Christ? This is an intimidating thing, but it's not terribly complicated, and it's not something that we do alone. So one of the first ways that we become a part of making disciples of Christ 
is we follow Christ ourselves. So Christ, the way that he brought people to follow him was incarnational. He came to us, didn't he? And he didn't come to everybody in the world, even when he was living on earth. The one who was robed in all authority and power manifested himself at a certain point in history. And then even within that point of history, in history, he called 12 disciples to draw near to him, to be close to him, to follow him, Uh, in this very personal way. Making disciples is always an incarnational act. We follow Christ ourselves so that people can then follow the Christ that we are embodying in our own lives. Now, this isn't to say that we have to follow Christ perfectly in in order to lead people to Christ. Um, a main reason that Christians follow Jesus is because of the mercy that we find in him. So the more that we experience Christ's mercy and following him ourselves, the easier it is to lead others to him. So leading people to follow Christ is incarnational. It's something that has to be embodied in real life. And so right now, even though we are ostracized from many people, the way that we are living our lives distinctly as Christians, still doing things like trying to worship with uh, God with other people, this is a way that we continue to follow Christ and we represent Christ to others. We're finding ways of loving others. Yesterday in our small group, um, LaVon Martin had decided to bake these Easter treats for everybody in our group as a way of loving us and helping our group stay together. It was an incarnational way of showing love. And so she found a way of delivering these and dropping these at people's doorsteps. I'm sorry that if you're not, that you're not in the Lakewood small group that you missed out on these treats. There are ways even right now that we embody Christ by the way that we love others, by the way that we try to stick together with others, by the way that we pray in this moment, by the way that we mourn even. So the first way that we help make disciples is we follow Christ ourselves. We embody Christ in our lives. We seek to follow him more closely. And as we're drawn into the life of Christ, we draw others with us. Now, where, where is the main place that we end up doing this as individuals? In other words, do we need to go stand in front of Walmart in order to be able to proclaim Christ and hand out tracts or something like this? The main place that we make disciples is in the places that we in the places we spend most of our time. God's authority is present in all creation. God holds authority over everything, and he sends his people as ambassadors of his authority into every nook and cranny of the creation. So remember, God uh, creates the heavens and the earth, the, the stars and also the animals in the sea. God's authority is invested in uh, places in science and education, in the home and parenting. His wisdom is present in everything. Now, our vocations are the places where we spend the most time in our lives. These are the places 
where God has put us to make disciples. So these vocations can change throughout our lives, from being a student uh, to being a teacher, from being single to being married and becoming a parent. Your primary work could be as a homemaker. Whatever that work may be, it could be as a parent. Whatever that work may be, that is the primary place of stewardship and discipleship that Jesus has given us. We're priests in these places, and what that means is that we're called to lift up the burdens of these places in our prayers to God. We are to bring these places before God, interceding for his work in those places, that his kingdom would come into those places and to the lives of the people that exists there with us. We're to exercise God's wisdom in these places, whether it's in a business or it's in a family. The primary people that you disciple could be your children. It could be other mothers that you are called to mentor. Or if you're a business owner, it could be your employees. The way that you teach them to be honest, to have integrity in their work. It could be colleagues at your office place. We make disciples as individuals by following Christ ourselves, representing Christ in an incarnational way, and doing this in the places that we spend most of the time of our lives, in our homes and in our workplaces. Uh, frankly, the, the place that I am learning right now in this particular season of life to be more faithful in my vocation is in my home, because this is where I'm getting to spend the most of my time right now. And it's a reminder that the primary place that I have to work out my faith right now is in being a husband and a father. What are the places that you are called to be making disciples in your life right now? Remember, wherever it is that you are spending the most time, that is the place that God has sent you to make disciples, to pray, and to exercise his wisdom to bring his presence into that place. So we make disciples as individuals by following Christ ourselves and by working out our faith in the midst of our vocation. But there is a last way that we are called to make disciples as individuals. And that is by having a very courageous faith. At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about the ways that the disciples are transformed through the process of coming into contact with the resurrected Christ. Now remember the comparison between the soldiers who accepted the bribe and the, dis and the disciples. How different would things have been if the, those the soldiers would have been people who began to believe in the resurrected Christ, who were soldiers who exercised their work with integrity and with, encourage, with courage? It could have been drastically different. The disciples would have to exercise a courageous faith to believe in the Lord Jesus. They would have to go and risk their very lives. Now look, the reality is that a lot of us are not going to have to put our lives uh, at the risk of death, literal death, 
in order to bear witness to our faith. However, we might have to risk our reputation in some way. If we speak boldly about honesty and integrity in our workplaces, that, that sometimes could involve risk. The risk of money, the risk of uh, some sense of prestige. Wherever it is that we are called to exercise our faith, to bear witness to Christ, it could involve some amount of risk. Where is it in your work that you have the opportunity to share Christ with people? Maybe it's uh, students at school, and you have to figure out the nuances of how to do that in a public school system. Um, maybe it's with colleagues who um, are rejecting Christ in their lives, and you have to raise the question for them of whether they're thinking about um, what they're, the way that they're ruining their lives by not following Jesus. This can look different for all of us, but it is clear that all of us are called to speak boldly, to find ways to talk about Christ. This is not a popular thing, especially because um, people have done this in bad ways in the past. Christians are, have become known as people who don't always um, love people in the way that they witness. And so we have to um, earn the right to do this again. We have to be willing to do it, to raise these questions for people. And on the other side of all that's happening right now, there are going to be people who are looking for answers about how God is present and active in the world, about how God can work in our lives through Jesus Christ and lead us to become true humans again, to flourish in the world as human beings. Now, I've mainly focus this morning on how we make disciples as individuals. But this is not to say that we're ever alone in doing it. Together as individuals, we make up what the Apostle Peter calls a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So we gather every week after our successes and failures in following Christ and in bearing witness to Christ and in tempting, attempting to make disciples in the places that God is sending us. We hear the forgiveness of sins through Christ proclaimed over us in the, our services. But then we're sent back out with Christ's command to go and make disciples wherever it is that God has called us in the world. So every time that we leave this service, we're sent out with his commands to love God and to love our neighbors and to make disciples, to speak boldly on Christ's behalf and to be his ambassadors of reconciliation in the world. And so how are you as an individual being faithful to Christ by drawing near to him in your life and by using the places that he sent you to embody his love and to speak boldly of his redemption of the world through his death and resurrection. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.